The American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, everyone. Uh, This is Dr. Alan Fine, the uh, podcast editor of the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. And uh, it has been our tradition to review the ATS core curriculum, which will be published in this month's Annals. And we're going to be focusing today on adult pulmonary medicine. And obviously, that covers a very broad range of topics, but we are going to focus on a few issues which uh, we will get into. And uh, today it's my pleasure to have Dr. Gatain Michaud, who is the Director of Interventional Pulmonology at New York University School of Medicine and Vice Chair of the ATS Education Committee. And she has a lot of tremendous skills and background, but today she's wearing her educator's hat. So, uh, Gatain, I would like to ask you about the ATS core curriculum, why it was developed, and how it was developed. So, thank you very much for actually inviting me to participate in the podcast, and I'd be happy to talk to you about the core curriculum. So, the core curriculum was actually designed to meet the needs of the um, ATS membership with respect to their educational needs for ongoing education, preparation for boards, for board recertification, and as well as to helping them keep up to date. It's very interesting because even now, we're realizing that a lot of the participants from the core are not necessarily participating in the core simply to prepare for recertification exams. A lot of them are participating because it provides a lot of broader-based review of pulmonary medicine, things sometimes that they haven't seen in practice for some time and they need a refresher. And, uh, you know, there are a very large number of topics. How did you pick them and how did you prioritize them? So we do base our prioritization of topics based on the ABIM recertification examinations. Um, what we do is we, we sort of classify topics into very common in pulmonary practice, therefore have a high likelihood of being on the boards and have, have previously been on the boards. Things like asthma, interstitial lung disease, you'll see very frequently presented in the core. And then less frequently, we bring topics that are sort of high yield, but kind of bursts. So either things that are novel and interesting, therefore high likelihood of presenting themselves on the board examinations, or alternatively, things that are are sort of rare and unusual. So uh, one area that uh, was uh, highlighted and which our listeners and readership will be able to explore is that of uh, cellular and molecular biology and genetics. And uh, clearly that's not a... um, directly clinical topic, but uh, why did we decide to include cellular and molecular biology? And maybe uh, give us some of your thoughts about, uh, you know, what's important, what should clinicians know, and maybe explore further. 
I think that we're coming into a completely new era of pulmonary medicine and critical care medicine, I should say, where cellular, molecular, uh, biology, genetics, they're all actually becoming kind of a lot of uh, to the forefront of clinical medicine. You know, there are newer genetic testing where we're trying to, to genotype and phenotype patients for things such as asthma. We know that when you look at things, even some of the rare diseases like pulmonary alveolar proteinosis, certainly we know that when we have antibodies against the macrophages, we can develop disease such as pulmonary alveolar proteinosis. And a lot of those things are becoming targets for treatment. So if you look at something as simple as lung cancer, for example, we're now starting to find more and more targets for disease. So if you think about EGFR or ALK mutations in lung cancer, we're now developing drug targets for those specific mutations, those genetic mutations. So I think that it's an incredible change in how we practiced 10 years ago. If you look at things like asthma, certainly a lot of the interleukin therapies. So we're looking at IL-5, IL-13 for asthma. So I think that there's a a lot of therapeutic options, and we're using a lot of these tests for diagnostics as well. So uh, you brought up asthma, and I think that's a, a good segue into uh, perhaps the future of asthma therapy. So in the core curriculum, what do you think is up and coming in our ability to manage asthma and, and maybe you can start out by telling us you know what is severe asthma how should we define it when might we consider using biologic therapy in asthma so i think the definition of severe asthma is asthma that actually requires high-dose uh, inhaled corticosteroids as well as a second agent, whether that's a LABA, a LAMA, or systemic steroids. You know, it's not one disease process. It's actually a heterogeneous group of patients, and they can present phenotypically a little bit different, and it can actually have uh, differences in genotypes. You know, What's interesting is when you actually look at patients that present with poorly controlled asthma, about 30% of them don't have asthma at all. And we don't have great markers for uh, asthma beyond clinical practice and spirometry. You know, we can use sputomyosinophils that can be helpful, but even things like FENO that we thought had a lot of promise hasn't quite panned out. And we're not quite there yet with respect to biomarkers. Uh, I think a lot of that is actually still under research protocol. However, you know, we do know that if you do have uncontrolled asthma, so if you have, you know, if you're requiring oral corticosteroids for uh, a significant portion of the year, you require high-dose inhaled steroids, you actually need a lot of rescue inhalers on a daily basis. Your FEV1 is actually pretty low, or you're requiring a lot of hospitalizations. Certainly, you fall into that category of severe asthma. And I should mention that if you have a near-fatal event, obviously, you fall into the category of severe asthma. You know, the hard part is because part of the definition of severe asthma is that you've been maxed out on those historically disease-modifying agents, such as inhaled corticosteroids and even long-acting inhaled bronchodilators, when you fall outside of that, you're kind of escalating beyond the standard of therapy. And those are the patients that you would classify as having severe asthma and that you might consider add-on therapies. And some of the add-on therapies um, that are being looked at now include things such as 
a lot of these interleukins. Uh, we know that IL-5 has certainly uh, shown some promising results. Currently, there are studies ongoing for IL-13. Other things that people are looking at are bronchial thermoplasty and, of course, anti-IgEs. Now, the issue is, is that because it's a phenotypically and genotypically diverse group of patients, the concept of one-size-fits-all probably is not accurate, and I think you have to select the appropriate therapy for the appropriate patient, and we're still learning a lot about that, and that's why we step back to that, you know, those analyses, those looking at the genetics of these patients and looking at their cellular and molecular biologic profiles, I think is going to be extremely helpful in the future. So as an interventionalist, I, I thought it was interesting that thermoplasty was mentioned, and somewhat controversial intervention in asthma. What's your opinion about its place? Does it have a place in asthma management? So this wasn't discussed much uh, in the core other than saying we don't understand what the exact role is yet. And I would concur with that. I think that we know that it is helpful in some patients, but we don't know if that it's certainly not helpful in all patients. And like I said a few minutes ago, I think what we really need to do is try to understand the diversity of the severe asthmatic and try and be able to classify them and understand which patients respond to which types of therapy and be able to provide the most appropriate therapy for their phenotype. The uh, methotrexate was also mentioned in the core curriculum. Do you think there's still a role for methotrexate in any phenotype or genotype of asthma? So I think that then in a subset of patients, it certainly has been utilized for severe asthmatics that are unresponsive to other types of therapies. I think when you're looking at a patient that's requiring add-on therapies such as a diverse panel of immune modulating agents or alternatively methotrexate or even bronchial thermoplasty, that's when you're really getting into a, a group of patients that probably would benefit from being seen in a specialty asthma program that actually allows these patients to be seen and managed in a really controlled setting where they may have opportunities to be enrolled in clinical trials. So uh, just to pursue our airway focus, I, I know there were other airway diseases that were highlighted, and uh, maybe you want to say a few words about what the clinician should be focusing on. What are the, uh, we'll call them the, the hot topics in uh, airway disease outside the realm of asthma? Well, certainly in this year's core curriculum, we talked a lot about obliterative bronchiolitis, bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, uh, you know, and we also talked about vocal cord dysfunction. And, you know, these are topics that are actually really relevant because a lot of the non-asthmatic airways diseases, you know, they can look clinically very similar. And so being able to distinguish between these and to understand some of the etiologies is actually really important. And certainly when we talked about obliterative bronchiolitis, we think about autoimmune disease such as rheumatoid arthritis. We can think about whether or not they were induced by exposure to inhalational toxins, some viral infections in mycoplasma. And then when we get to the bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, you know, we're sort of thinking about patients that are either showing signs of chronic rejection from either bone marrow transplant or alternatively from a lung transplantation. So 
you know, there are certain areas of therapy that could be beneficial. Certainly understanding the etiology can help us at least eliminate ongoing risk if possible. And then with respect to BOS, I think the idea of trying to reduce the steroids and um, get them onto tacrolimus if they're on cyclosporine, giving them a trial of zithromycin, and obviously correcting any reflux, I think is certainly beneficial. So uh, in our last few minutes, I just wanted to ask you if there's, as the uh, associate chair of the uh, education committee, what would you recommend? What topics would you, I know you'd recommend them all, but uh, what, what do you think is going to be important in the uh, coming year for uh, clinicians in terms of the core curriculum? So... I can tell you that rare diseases always has a place. We switch those up every year. So there will be rare diseases on this year's core curriculum. We will have pulmonary infections because certainly we know that a lot coming out um, with respect to guidelines for pulmonary infections. And we do like to bring things that are timely to the core curriculum. So if we have good data coming out or a statement uh, about management that's coming out, we like to actually incorporate those uh, into the core curriculum. So I can tell you that, again, we'll have some airways diseases this year. It's going to be COPD as opposed to asthma. And we will have some uh, interstitial disease again this year. And of course, pulmonary hypertension. Uh, Given yeah, well, we all have, the new information, we did, uh, that's, just, cover pulmonary that's hypertension. just a plug on my part. <laughs> well, we did pulmonary hypertension this past year. So we're, we do have some, some pulmonary vascular disease this year. So uh, I want to thank Dr. Michaud for doing the podcast, and I think we got a lot of good information. I feel like I have to uh, go running out and head directly uh, to the library and turn on all my computers and iPad to start delving into all the topics that were highlighted in this year's core curriculum, and I hope our readership will take this opportunity to... uh, be as stimulated as I am about all the new information that's coming down the pike. So once again, thanks to Dr. Michelle for uh, sharing her time with us, and all of you have a great evening.